thanks to all of you for coming to this uh, special lecture by uh, Professor Ian Golden. We're very pleased to, to have Ian here. Ian has been very important in many ways to Oxford University, but also to International Migration Institute. Um, Ian's been directing the Oxford Mountain School since 2006. Um, and it was also actually in the same year that IMI was established. Um, and apart from having that very strong link to the Oxford Martin School, uh, Ian himself um, is very much interested in migration and has published this book a few years ago, which will be sort of the inspiration for his uh, today's lecture. Um, but Ian has been, I think, in many ways a friend of the IMI uh, over the last years and we've been always been touching several projects. For instance, our Global Migration Futures project, Ian has been an inspiration of and still involved in that. So in that sense, we keep on very strong links with the Oxford Martin School. Um, actually, Ian has just published another book called uh, Divided Nations. Um, and if you go to Blackwells, you can buy and find it. Uh, and actually, next Thursday at 7 p.m., uh, there will be a book launch in Blackwells. And if you're interested to go there, you have to register. So please look on the website of the Oxford Martin School or Blackwells itself uh, to make sure you, you get a place. Um, a little bit about the Oxford Martin School. Um, it's a very ambitious enterprise, and thanks to uh, James Martin, uh, it was possible to establish this school at the, Oxford, Oxford Martin, Oxford, at the University of Oxford, and the school really tries to address major issues of the 21st, 21st century, and it's a very interdisciplinary school, and many people are now um, in part of the Oxford Martin School, and if you go to the website, you can see the diversity and strength of the school. And it aims to be a leading global scholarly center for deep research into the sort of future global challenges, of which migration is one. Uh, prior to coming to Oxford, Ian has fulfilled several functions. He has been principal economist at the European Bank for Reconstruction and Development in London. He's been program director for the OECD in Paris and also Chief Executive and Managing Director of the Development Bank of Southern Africa. And at that same time, he also served as economic advisor to President Mandela. And you were also part, I think, of the Olympic bid of South Africa. Finance which, Director. Finance Director, of which we know it was very successful. And last but not least, Ian was also Director of, the Develop of Development Policy at the World Bank and has been was uh, Vice President of the World Bank. So we're very pleased to have Ian here. Thanks for coming and agreeing to give this talk. And uh, I would like to shut my own mouth <laughs> down and give you the floor. Thank you. Thanks uh, very much, Hein. It, it, it's a great pleasure to be here. I'm, I'm somewhat intimidated because um, I'm talking certainly to a group of people in Hein uh, and in Robin and, and Ollie, uh, who know hugely more about this um, subject uh, than I do. Uh, and indeed, I refer a lot uh, to Heinz's work and to Robin's work uh, in the book, Exceptional People. And Adrian Wood, who's sitting here, was one of the first people, though he might not know this, uh, who really inspired me to, uh, to think about these issues of globalization uh, and the international division of labor uh, from the work that he did um, way back in the 1970s uh, in this area. So uh, I feel I'm sort of talking to people who could be my examiners in Aviva, and that's uh, intimidating. In fact, I think Robin was my examiner in Aviva. <laughs> uh, so uh, 
it's, uh, it's a sort of still an intimidating thing, even when you get older. Um, but let me share some thoughts from uh, exceptional people and to a group that I think is, is particularly helpful to me in, in helping me to take some of these ideas um, forward. And IMI is quite remarkable. Uh, I think it's by far the best group of its kind in the world. Uh, and I'm really proud that it's in, been associated with the Oxford Martin School. And I, I certainly hope that we can, in the future, continue to support it, because this work is really important. Uh, migration is in not only the orphan of the interne international um, governance system, uh, but it's also, I think, an orphan too often of intellectual pursuit and of political pursuit. Of course, it's, it's, you, it gets its column inches in the newspapers, uh, but in what is largely uh, not a very grown-up debate. In other words, this tends to be an area where there's so much more heat than light and smoke uh, than fire uh, in terms of real evidence uh, and action. So I think one of the things that, that really does uh, need to happen is that we need to put evidence on the table and think more deeply about migration. The reason that, um, that I've uh, been keen to work on this topic is because as an economist uh, I've always been very puzzled as to why it has received so little attention. Um, and one of the ironies of economics is that the, the great uh, forefathers of neoclassical economics, like John Stuart Mill uh, and Adam Smith, were always absolutely insistent that the free movement of labor uh, was a necessary condition for free markets uh, and for the evolution of capitalism. Uh, in the subsequent iterations uh, of schools of thought into neoclassical economics and more recent thinking, this is conveniently neglected. Uh, and so it is that you have people that believe absolutely passionately in everything being free, uh, including the extreme right wing in the US, for example, but not free labor. Uh, so the ability of people to stand on the intellectual heads, uh, of course, is, is renowned, uh, but this is very striking. I have a, a personal dimension to this. I've been, I actually first worked on migration uh, in my undergraduate degree working on colored labor preference policies in the Western Cape of South Africa. It's the movement of people in South Africa. I'm really in, intrigued about how this played into the formation of South Africa. And as a South African, of course, migration is absolutely central to the discussions on apartheid and capitalism in South Africa. Um, but what I came to appreciate subsequently uh, was this is a much bigger story. Indeed, uh, John Kenneth Galbraith and many others have written about the relationship of poverty to migration. Uh, and I've come to see uh, migration. And when I say migration, I'm really saying what the US calls immigration. In other words, cross-border migration as opposed to migration within countries. Um, I've come to see this as absolutely central to one's understanding of development uh, and poverty reduction. Um, and in a sense, what there is is almost a truism that when people migrate, uh, they migrate from poverty. Uh, they also migrate from vulnerability, be it famines, wars, uh, and other forms of vulnerability. And the proliferation of nation states and the 
raising of borders around nation states uh, has been accompanied uh, axiomatically by an increase in the number of immigrants, because when you break a country up suddenly you're not in your own country anymore, um, but also with increasing barriers to that movement. And so essentially people are trapped in poverty. Um, and if you want to do the thought experiment, would there still be poverty in the world if there was free movement of people? Oh, that's an interesting thought experiment. I actually think there would be, for reasons I'll come to, which is the poorest people can't migrate. Uh, but certainly poverty levels would be much lower, and there's quite a lot of evidence uh, around that. So there's a reason based on economic, my interest in economics, uh, there's a reason based on my interest in development uh, that I, I'm very interested in immigration and migration. Um, and the third reason is ethical and based on my own history. I certainly would not be standing here today uh, if my grandparents on both sides of the family hadn't been allowed to migrate and I also hadn't been allowed to migrate. Uh, and uh, that's true of all of you. So one of the things I'm very happy about in, in this book, although it's not in the paperback, I'm afraid, is that's the front of the book and a similar one in the back, and that's my genome, and it takes me back 150 years, 150,000 years uh, to my roots in Africa. But we all are immigrants uh, over time. We've all migrated, uh, and one of the wonderful things that's happening with new technologies of genomics and other technologies is that this is increasingly obvious uh, because we can do at a very low price now, uh, our own genomes. So I think we all need to understand that we wouldn't be here uh, and that uh, we have an ethical obligation to others to have the same choices that we've been able to make uh, in our lives. So those are the reasons that, that I'm interested. What the book tries to contribute, and my work on this is trying to contribute, is perhaps two, two fresh perspectives. The first is from the perspective as an economist. Not an economist in the sense that I'm trying to do econometric equations, but I'm trying to understand the role of migration in driving economic forces. So how, what effect it has on economies and the dynamism of economies, and what effect it has on people's incomes, employment, and livelihoods. Um, and the second, area where I think the book makes a contribution is it's extremely wide-ranging in its time uh, periods and in its global reach. So it covers 150,000 years of migration and it looks 50 years into the future. So there's some other great books like the book by um, Castles and Cossack, Age of Migration, many other great books which are quite sweeping in their history. I'm not aware of any that tries to look forward as well, so that's where I'm really trying to make a fool of myself uh, and will, the evidence will be stacked up against me in the future. And I do this because I'm trying to make a point uh, about in the broad span of time, uh, how absolutely significant migration is, and that's why the subtitle of the book is how migration shaped our world and will define our future. Because I think it will define our future, and I think it has shaped our world. Um, and in the, in the heat of the current debates, the political debates in the UK, in Europe, and the US, uh, people lose track of this uh, extremely quickly and tend to think of this period as somehow being exceptional. 
as being impaired when there's exceptional levels of migration or problems with migration, etc. And I, I hope that I am able to put some of that uh, in perspective. Indeed, as a share of populations, uh, levels of migration now for many countries are much lower than they were historically. They're certainly lower than the age of mass migration, for example, in the second half of the 19th um, uh, century. So, the, in the first part of the book, in this history section, and you know, again, drawing on work from Robin and, and others, I try and think about this, and, and it's, it's very important in this not to somehow glorify migration. A lot of migration was absolutely barbaric, like slavery, uh, for example, so I'm not suggesting that migration is necessarily good, and of course colonialism uh, and imperialism were other forms of migration of particular groups of people, uh, but they shaped the world uh, and they led uh, to mass movements as did the evolution of slavery, forced labor, migration and other processes. It's an interesting question in retrospect to think about these mass processes uh, which uh, were atrocities in terms of human rights and in many other ways, uh, but to stand back from them and say, well, how have they shaped the world and the places which people have gone to? And clearly that shaping has been dramatic and I try and point to, to some of that. So what the first part of the book does is look at some of these mass movements in history of migration, starting with our movement out of Africa. And the evidence now, I think, is conclusive is the wrong word, because I'm sure it'll be revised uh, rapidly in the years to come. But there's quite a lot of evidence that we nearly died out as a human species um, because of a combination of, of environmental factors, uh, largely. Um, and it was the migration that kept us going, and so in a very deep, long sense, uh, that's, that was the original escape from poverty, disease, and famine um, across Africa and around the world. Now what's remarkable about the current period, which is the second part of the book, is the coming together of these, what some have called the scattlings, the people around the world, um, over this period and this reconnection and particularly this period since about 1990, which um, is the period of turbocharged uh, globalization, largely as a result of the walls coming down. Berlin Wall, Chinese opening up, uh, etc. And there's really only two countries in the world now, uh, which is um, Turkmenistan and North Korea, who are isolated. Uh, in terms of economic processes, idea processes, uh, etc. Um, but of course, all the countries are trying to become uh, much more selective and isolated in respect of migration of people. There's a big exception to all of this, which is the European Union. And the European Union is extremely interesting uh, from a migration perspective because it's the first real experiment of the removal of borders. Uh, between the between people, certainly continental Europe. Uh, there's some other experiments, like in West Africa, uh, small experiments where borders have been removed in terms of movement of people. But this is the first really big experiment. Um, and one of the things I try and do, and this is really towards the end of the book, but look at 
thought experiments around corner solutions. Imagine a world with no borders and imagine a world uh, with no migration. And those are really the two, the two corner solutions where anyone can migrate or where no one can migrate. Um, and we have examples of those. So North Korea is an example of a country where no one can migrate. Um, and the European Union is an example of a region where everyone can migrate. Of course, you can't migrate into the European Union, but within it, there's a lot of freedom of movement. And these are very instructive examples because they give you a sense of what people regard as politically impossible, uh, certainly the free movement of people. Uh, when, I, when I sort of say I see, I see that as my end solution rather than like free trade, people think I've been smoking something. Um, but it, what's particularly instructive in the context of the European Union is how few people migrate. Uh, not least when you have 60% unemployment. I mean, if ever you want an economic experiment on the impact of uh, crises or unemployment uh, and movement uh, or lack of it, uh, of course, Southern Europe provides that now. They have 60% youth unemployment, um, and uh, in, in Portugal, uh, in uh, Spain, and in Greece. And the last time I walked down Corn Market, I didn't see any. Uh, people homeless from any of those regions. So, in fact, the, t the number of people that are migrating from those countries actually gone down into the UK. So, this is very interesting. What's happening here uh, in terms of the traditional economic uh, understanding? Um, and I think the sort of work that others have been doing, including uh, Ollie and Hein, on network effects, chain migration, and all of these things become very, very important explanatory variables in understanding why people migrate uh, and, in a sense, diminishing the simple uh, solutions that people talk about in the analysis, which is this is to do with employment levels or income levels, uh, etc. Let me briefly go through some of the dimensions I talk about um, in the current period uh, from a migrant's perspective, from the sending country and the receiving country's perspectives, uh, and then talk a little bit about some of the future, future trends and then um, wind up and leave time for discussion. The, the, the evidence on migration decisions is, um, again, as, as many in the room have, have shown, uh, is that this is increasingly complex uh, and that we need to really throw out these simple unidimensional explanations, and certainly the explanations that simply rely on economic um, explanations. So these indivi the individual choice being a family choice typically, or a community choice, um, and uh, that that is extremely dependent also on the prevailing established networks or chains, and of course you all know this from your travel, so you, you know, every time you take a taxi in a different town, you'll get a different network of people from a different place, whether you're in Dubai or Abu Dhabi or London or Oxford or Minnesota or wherever. Just ask the people around where they're from 
uh, and then ask others and there's a remarkable coincidence and that's no accident that's the network effect uh, and chain effects uh, in action um, and and ends up with very very strange uh, systems um, like this movie that uh, Hein uh, and I was involved in that Hein saw on Dutch TV which talks about the Nigerians in Guangzhou half a million something uh, you know, uh, why are they there, how did they get there, why are there so many, um, incredible. Uh, but they will talk about the network effect, about they knew someone who knew someone, etc. So these are the individual decisions, not so much whether to migrate, but where to migrate to um, and what sort of things uh, to establish there. So very, very interesting uh, effects. I think the, the, the evidence that I was trying to look at regarding uh, migration decisions on income levels, I'm pretty convinced uh, by the somewhat discredited migration hump uh, evidence, and I think the discrediting is right, it's very specific, it has lots of other variables, but clearly it's not the poorest people that migrate, um, and uh, sometimes the hump is very got a very flat tail to it, in a very high tail uh, to it, so people at higher incomes also do migrate. Um, but this issue of, 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 of how you need certain levels of income and connectivity to be a migrant, uh, I think, is extremely important. And it's one of the reasons why I don't really go for the development explanation of how you're going to stop migration. You know, if only we gave the Moroccans more money uh, or the Malians, uh, they wouldn't come here. Uh, I don't think that that is a very strong uh, conceptual structure for it. Uh, the trade debate is, is more powerful, I think, if only you could really get these economies uh, driving. Um, I think there's that, but, but given how high these humps are, um, I think that there's a very long way to climb uh, on these. But more important explanation, I think, is around uh, your ability to receive people, and then you might get countervailing effects. So, we, you know, I mentioned why don't the Spanish or the Portuguese or Greek youth come to England, uh, or even go to Germany, interestingly enough, which has only has 4% unemployment. Um, and part of the explanation is that if you're unemployed, you'd rather be unemployed in a place that can sustain you, where you can stay with your family, where they can feed you, where the community will look after you, rather than go to some foreign, especially cold place, uh, and try and sustain yourself on the streets. Um, so even the, you know, social security is not going to overcome that. Uh, and um, what's, what I found also very interesting in the racist data, and you might have picked this up, is actually the biggest flow at the moment of Southern Europeans is, uh, is to, not the biggest, the second biggest, is to Poland. So Poland, far from being um, a net exporter of people, is now a net importer, including of Southern Europeans. So uh, this, is, this is the, the you know, and, and Poland's got quite a high unemployment rate. Uh, unemployment in Poland's about 9% as well. So I think there's, there's interesting data around trying to understand all of this and why, uh, what sort of jobs and the capacity. Obviously, there's, there's other forces that can also drive this. Uh, refugees is a whole other area. I don't really talk about refugees. People taking refuge and politics, and certainly for me, uh, politics was very important. And why this, the, the, 
South Africans migration was driven often by political forces and we see that now and obviously the refugee situation in Syria is the most recent example. The environment is an area that um, I've puzzled around a great deal and there are again people in IMI who've been doing far better work uh, than I have uh, on this but in the context of the UK government foresight study on environment and migration uh, I not only wrote a chapter but I looked at everyone else's chapters um, and I think it's a very good study and anyone that's interested in this relationship I would commend that study to it. Uh, my friend Nick Stone was not very happy with what I wrote. We, we're very close uh, but he was very critical of what I said on migration and the environment which is basically this is unlikely to be on its own a key driver of migration uh, going forward uh, because the decisions are extremely complex and I, thought the, I think the work that's been done at IMI on the Sahel for example is very very instructive um, in this regard. Um, now what in trying to debate this issue with Nick um, what, I, what we both came to discover is actually what we were thinking about was mainly a difference in time period, in periodization. If you think about climate as a, and this issue of a 50 or 100 year period, then these big numbers, you know, and the number that people cite is Norman Mayer's um, sticking his finger up in the wind number with no scientific basis at all as far as I've been able to see of 200 million environmental uh, migrants or refugees. Um, when you start looking 50, 100 years out you can start and you start imagining sea level rises of one, two, three, four meters um, and various other catastrophic sort of events around the world then you can start getting into scenarios of very large uh, movements of people caused by uh, environmental factors. Before that, and, I, and, and what I'm talking about is the next 10 or 20 years in, in my book, or maybe 50 at a push, um, there's much more evolutionary uh, movement, movement of people from rural areas to urban areas, some migration to coastal countries in Africa and other sorts of processes happening rather than these sort of mass displacements which is what Nick has in mind. So I think it's certainly out there, one needs to be very careful about it um, but, um, but I, I, I'm skeptical uh, in the short term about this being a key driver of international migration or cross-border migration. Of course there are lots of other drivers uh, which I haven't mentioned like students, uh, high skilled etc which are also important uh, over this period and we'll certainly see massive increases uh, in them. On the receiving countries, the uh, sorry, on the sending countries there's much to be said and um, I, I think there's much that, that's also been said that's not, that's not right on this. Clearly the devil as always is in the research detail uh, and it matters a lot whether you're a small island state and half of your skilled people have left or whether you're Nigeria um, in terms of what you're thinking about the, the impact of uh, our, our, and who migrates clearly is, is extremely important. But I'm pretty convinced that actually the, the story that's, that's generally told about brain drain and so on is a bit exaggerated uh, for most developing countries. And um, I'm intrigued to see what Paul Collier is going to say in his book that um, he's planning to bring out. 
uh, on this because I'm just reading the website. I think he's going to say something rather different. But um, my, my own view uh, is that although it's absolutely clear that the movement out of Africa of, say, half of the professionals is, a, is extremely negative for Africa, in the medium term, the broad impact of having people leave uh, need not be. I mean, there's all sorts of questions that need to be posed. Would these people have got the skills if they weren't assuming they could leave? Okay, so there's a lot of uncertainty on the supply side. Assuming that they somehow would have stayed in the country, I think is um, there's real evidence uh, of that. There's a big question about human rights here. Do countries have the right? If you believe in migration, should you, in general, do you start saying to people, actually, for certain categories, I don't believe in it anymore? And I think there's a, there's a big logical inconsistency there. Um, saying, you know, we, uh, migration's fine if you're unskilled, but not if you're skilled, or something like that. Why? Uh, there's, there's a lot of evidence now coming out of the diaspora literature, which I think is very exciting, about the return flows. And Alan Gamlin here and others have done some great work on this. The return flows that migrants create in terms of investment flows, in terms of technological know-how, in terms of political mobilization and support, and whether or not that leads to the transformation of the country. And I see this very much from South Africa. If, the, if, if people had not left South Africa, would South Africa have transformed sooner or later is a fair question. And I don't think any, there's any evidence that if people hadn't left, it would have transformed sooner. Indeed, the ANC went into exile and formed a mass movement, which then came back and, and led, to, led to change. There might be certain circumstances. Of course, there are certain countries, uh, and Israel and Taiwan are perhaps the best examples of these, that might not even exist as we know them today without their diasporas. So these countries' very survival in the way we know of them today has been dependent on people being um, abroad. there's, there's also a, a great importance to, to look at the, the consistency of different dimensions of this. So the UK government, um, through DFID, um, builds nursing homes and, and hospitals in Malawi, and then the NHS recruits the nurses. Um, so this is obviously inconsistent. Being coherent on these policies is vital. But I don't believe the answer is to, for Malawi to say you can't go to its nurses or to its um, doctors or other professionals. But I do believe there's a case to be made for thinking very deeply about capital, human capital formation and who pays and who receives the benefit. So what I'm getting at here is if a society, a poor society, let's say Malawi, invests half a million dollars in training a doctor, and then that doctor leaves and comes and looks after me at the John Radcliffe, and has been at no cost to me in terms of my tax payment or the UK taxpayer, I believe that's basically a south-north transfer of resources. Um, so I think what we should be looking at is ways of ensuring that if we are recruiting skilled people from other countries, that we compensate either the country or the institution, and this is where it gets sort of complicated, for the human capital formation. So the National Health Service should pay Malawi the cost of training a doctor for every doctor that it recruits. 
for example, if it's the National Health Service recruiting it. Now, what happens if it's a private nursing home in the UK recruiting it? This is where it starts getting complicated. And is it the individual that has a debt or is it the society? Uh, should it be the end of, and then you get into one of the conclusions of this is that maybe education of this nature should be funded out of debt and loan schemes rather than uh, out of taxes, which is a whole different sort of question. And then the individual has to repay that wherever they are in the world, okay, if they leave the country, maybe. So there's ways of thinking about this, but I don't, th and it's a big, big question uh, in terms of the drain of resources uh, to people that leave countries. But it's about the society has paid for this resource that has then basically benefiting another society. And I think particularly for developing countries, uh, this is a, a big issue. There's some societies like the Philippines, of course, that make a business out of exporting people. Uh, in their case, maids, nurses, etc. And, and, and what's interesting when you make a business of this is that Whereas in other societies, like in, say, African or the Caribbean, there's a deficit of people in the critical areas as a result of people's out-migration. In the Philippines, there's higher per capita nurses uh, than in its neighbor because the system uh, is invested so heavily. But it's a, as, as far as I understand the Philippine system, it's private. Rule. It's quasi-private. In other words, it's not taxpayers that are paying for this training of these nurses. It's the nurses uh, and, the, and the, all the agencies themselves that are paying uh, for this. And that, I think, makes it very different. So brain drain is a very important issue, but I don't think uh, necessarily the response um, is, is, to, is to say you can't leave. I am for policies which say you've got to stay in the country for two or three years after your uh, training, but that's not going to be a solution itself. There's the political point that I've made, there's the dynamism point that I've made, and there I think the evidence is quite contradictory, uh, at least, in other words, people leaving might be, also provide very dynamic impact. Whether migration provides a safety valve for people that otherwise would have transformed their society. So is the reason why some countries are not democratic is because all the democratic people have left. Um, I think that's a difficult sort of argument uh, to sustain, but you can see the arguments um, there. In terms of the countries that people are going to, um, there's there's a great deal, I think, of, uh, sorry, just on the countries that are receiving, obviously, the remittance thing, which I'm not going to talk about because that's what everyone talks about. Uh, but remittances are extremely important. And for many countries, as you know, like Lesotho, this is almost half of, of uh, the income the country receives. What's very important to say in that um, is that, firstly, it's not clear to me that the, the historical time series on remittances are accurate. So, you know, the sudden move or from 100 billion to 400 billion, I think reflects September the 11th and surveillance and different channels more than it does the fact that there's just four times as many much money being sent home. The second thing is it tends to be counter-cyclical, which is very good because people tend to send home more money when people most need it and because the crises don't always happen in the same places. Unfortunately, the recent financial crisis has made this counter-cyclical thing very difficult, uh, although it's still working in places like the Gulf uh, and India. And the third thing to say is that these are private transfers. Uh, and this, I think, is very important because some of the aid debate is trying to appropriate, in the U.S. at least, remittances and add them into aid numbers and other, all sorts of other distortions. I think that's fundamentally wrong. However, 
how one leverages this up and whether you can, for example, securitize remittances and leveraging them up or how you mobilize savings as in the Mexican savings schemes is some of the stuff I talk about in the book. On the countries that the migrants are going to, um, there's, there's an enormous amount uh, to be said and which I try and tackle in the book. The, the key question from an economic sort of point of view is what are the static, what's the static impact and what's the dynamic impact? And what's very, very rarely talked about is the dynamic impact. The static impact tends to be what people focus on. What is the impact of migrants in your community on wages, on incomes, on employment is what people tend to worry about. Uh, and it tends to be very local. Now what's remarkable given how much um, political attention there is or social attention there is on this is that there's very, virtually no evidence uh, to go on uh, on this. There are very few studies. The studies tend to be extremely poor in their methodologies uh, and, the, and essentially the conclusion is inconclusive. No one is able to say uh, very much about what the impact is, and which is uh, quite remarkable uh, given uh, the importance of this issue. And that's partly because it's very, very complicated uh, to do this work. So, you know, if you have a lot of migrants in your community and your wages are lower than uh, they were before the migrants got there, is it because of the migrants that they lower or is something else happening uh, that might have affected this uh, and might be the reason the migrants are there in the first place? Like the industry might have become ununionized and allowed migrants into it, for example. Or manufacturing might have closed down and you might be transitioning to services in that town. And there's lots and lots of sort of explanations um, for this, uh, which mean that these studies are inconclusive. To the extent that they do um, come up with conclusions, they're mildly positive on the static uh, front. There's a big discussion regarding um, social security payments and other transfers. Do migrants pay more taxes than they receive in benefits? Again, uh, the evidence is very, very weak on this, and people tend to, for the very little done, virtually none done in the UK, it tends to be extrapolated from some studies in the US. Again, the system there is completely different to our system here, so it's probably not applicable. But again, the evidence tends to be positive on this, and, the, and some of the reasons are more or less intuitively obvious, which is that my, migrants tend to be different in terms of the demography to the rest of the population. They tend to have less dependents, less children, more single men, uh, and they tend to be less elderly than the rest of the population. They also tend to be less sick than the rest of the population. Or if they are sick, they don't use the services. Uh, they also tend to have more crowded accommodation and various other factors. That is, they have less of a pressure on the housing stock, less of a pressure on the schooling, on the social security system, on the health system, etc. Uh, relative to their contributions in direct and indirect taxes, income taxes, um, social security, national insurance payments, and um, value-added taxes and other taxes. So that, that's the evidence. Now, the, 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 one of the reasons there's so much uncertainty is about undocumented workers and what about them. Are they paying taxes? Uh, are they receiving benefits and in what proportion? Uh, and because they're undocumented, no one knows how many they are, and they're not uh, typically tracked. Even on undocumented workers, the evidence tends to be positive because they're undocumented, they don't tend to use the services of the society. Um, in many sides, they aren't even able to uh, use them because they're undocumented. So they sort of 
they're in the shadows of the society. Uh, but they do contribute uh, production. Uh, and of course they also pay numerous taxes, not least value-added taxes uh, and other taxes into the society. So um, th these are big, big, big discussions uh, which on balance are positive and one of the, the, the strong co conclusions is much more work needs to be done. Where I think uh, the evidence is pretty conclusive is on the dynamic rather than the static uh, impact where you have this rather complicated and inconclusive evidence. And the dynamic story is really a story around the role that migrants play in making economies competitive and dynamic and growing over time. Their role in innovation, their role in investment, their role in renewal of societies. And there's various ways of getting this, and there's just beginning to emerge a set of intriguing evidence uh, on this, but still very, very little evidence. And again, mainly from the US. So people looking, for example, at invention in the US, who's taking out the patents? You know, half the patents in the US being taken out are by migrants, even though they're about 11% of the population. There's a lot of evidence coming out of Silicon Valley. You know, who, who, who are the people creating all these startups? Where's the investment coming? Again, the evidence is roughly half, and I've got it in the book, roughly half of this, although, again, a small part of the population. And then you can look at other sort of symbolic indicators of dynamism, like who the Academy Award winners, or who the Nobel Prize winners, and, you know, and again, they represented in three or four times the proportion that they are in society, migrants are represented. So these sort of indicators of creativity, of innovation, etc. You can also look at the most dynamic cities like London, New York, Toronto, and, and relative to cities which stagnate and you get this much higher share of migrants in them. And Toronto, which has just been voted um, the nicest city in the world to, to live in, is 50% uh, migrants. So very, very big migrant numbers. And of course, that also raises big questions about why are we so worried. And London, London of, of, of course, also has a very high proportion of migration. But it's a broader point about diversity as well, which there's some intriguing new social psychological literature around and business school literature around. Diverse teams. Of course, there's been a lot of talk about women in the boardroom which is very important, and the, the importance of having women in teams to make these teams more robust and more dynamic. But the same is, applies to people with different backgrounds, cultural and other heritages, the importance of diversity uh, in dynamism. And, and uh, so the, the book's now called Diversity and Dynamism and things that are beginning to come out, which shows some of this evidence in a corporate uh, and country setting. But I think the US evidence around what um, economists will call endogenous growth, the ability of societies to, to improve their technologies, improve their abilities over time, is what's really compelling. Um, and that's not only about skilled and educated people, and of course the, the societies which find this easiest, like Australia uh, and others, is basically a guarantee that anyone that graduates from universities can stay. That's sort of getting a certain group of people in. Um, and you also say that anyone that's prepared to invest in startups and things can come. But it's a broader point uh, because, again, if you look at, for example, the Silicon Valley startups, it's not that these people came to the country as skilled people. Uh, they often the kids or, or, or came as young migrants. So I'm 
I think accepting many more skilled people is important, but I think believing that you're going to create dynamism in your society by only accepting skilled people uh, is to miss the point about this. It's about your society's ability to move and change with time uh, and to create a dynamism that I think it's, uh, that you very, very, uh, you, you need to focus on very strongly. Um, there's clearly one big issue which, which uh, is, is out there, which is the politics of this and the ability of societies to assimilate and accept uh, migrants. And the book doesn't spend a huge amount of time on that. Um, but one of the, the, the issues that I, I do discuss is the, the distribution of the, of the costs and benefits in a dynamic sense. So if it is the case that the whole of society will benefit, which I believe it is, from having more migrants, then it, very much like in trade, you have a problem of local short-term costs and, and national longer-term benefits. And this trade-off, which has been well-researched in the trade literature, of how you manage these transitions is extremely important to understand. The, because the costs tend to be very local um, and they tend to be short-run. And they're big costs. People feel the pain they feel, and they also feel the assimilation pain. Suddenly you go, your kids are going to a school where no one speaks your home language, or the majority of people don't, etc. On your street there are people that you don't understand. These are costs to people in their communities uh, that we need to accept and talk about. Uh, but you know that it's in the national interest. So what to do about this is very important. And it's very important that the debate is taken. Of course, in the end, it's the local authorities and the local communities that need to deal with these issues. But it's very important also to understand that they're doing it on behalf of the whole country. And so they need to be helped. It's wrong to me that Slough, for example, which has something like 35% uh, immigrant population, is forced to bear the burden of that without very strong support from national government in terms of its capabilities of managing this. Um, so it, it's a national rather than a local um, advantage to have these higher levels of migrant. And of course you want to make it simple for the migrants to move out of these ghettos which they find themselves in. Just um, in the few minutes remaining to me, I'd just like to briefly talk about um, where I go on the future and some of the policy conclusions of this. The key drivers of the future, I think, will be the demographic drivers. And here there's this work that um, Stephen Castles uh, and, and others produced, which is basically projecting the decline in the working age population over the next 50 years or so as being rather dramatic. So what they are projecting is a 200 million person decline from about um, 800 million to 600 million uh, in the OECD workforce, if my memory uh, serves me. This is very dramatic and it's, it's based on all sorts of assumptions regarding rapidly declining fertility rates to well below replacement level uh, in, in the workforce. Now, I think that we need to uh, accept that those assumptions are unlikely uh, to be robust because our whole concept of work will change dramatically over the next 10, 20, 30 years. And the retirement package that was built in the 1950s, which is that when average life expectancy on retirement 
was about seven years that you would have pensions and retirement until you die is going to have to be thrown out the window uh, very, very soon. So people will work into their 70s and their 80s and they'll want to do so uh, and they'll have to do so because the other part of this retirement package that was built was assumptions that the risk-adjusted return was about 5% and of course we're in a world of 1% if we're lucky uh, which means we're going to have to save a huge amount more and work a lot longer uh, to uh, get by. The unfortunate thing is that for at least the next 30 years, uh, mental degeneration is lagging. Uh, well, improvements in overcoming mental degeneration are lagging uh, 30 years or so behind improvements in physical degeneration. What does this mean? It means that people into their 90s and 100s are still going to be extremely dependent and unable to look after themselves on, on average. Uh, that means that these dependency ratios really, really matter. Uh, not so much people in their 70s, who I think will be, yeah, as, um, as many of our colleagues are, the new, the new youth. Um, <laughs> but, um, but, pe but, but there are some hard barriers out there, unfortunately, for many people, uh, if not most people. And this is going to require, um, this is going to require a very, very big investment uh, in very people-intensive management. And there's no shortcut in automation, as far as I know, on the horizon to dependency care uh, for elderly people. So this is, this, is, this is one big thing, and there's all sorts of other areas of services as economies increasingly become service economies, where there's much talk of automation, and, I, and Oxford Modern School's got a group working on the future of technology and society, that I speak to about this, but there's some things that will not be automated. I used to cite the example of mowing lawns, but actually I saw um, last week for the first time in uh, my life an automatic lawnmower. <laughs> Uh, like these, like these, I don't know how many of you know, these swimming pool cleaners that go around the swimming pool, uh, clean the swimming pool by themselves, you know, you have to clean swimming pools. Well, they now have those for lawns. So actually, maybe lawns will be cut automatically uh, by machines, but there are many tasks that I think still will not be. Um, and as we get richer, we're able to service these sorts of things. So there's this gap. But even if migration was uh, 10 times its current level, it still wouldn't compensate for this changing demographics. So I believe we will be in a strong, strong demand for talented and untalented people, if you want to call someone that's going to push you around in your wheelchair untalented, although I hope I have a talented wheelchair pusher. Um, but the question is, will there be supply? And so then we have to work through the demographics and the economies of the sending countries. And my sense is that that supply is going to dry up, and it really is drying up from, from many, many, many countries. So I think, and this is part of this exercise that Hein mentioned, uh, this futures exercise that's been done on scenarios of what sort of world we're going into. So demography, incredibly important. I think uh, the evidence is going to become increasingly important about the role of migrants. We see this in the UK already with a lot of pushback from business. Uh, the evidence on the US certainly is that migration is going to be a source of dynamism going forward. Um, and I think as the US begins to change its policies, many other countries uh, will too uh, in this process. 
Just in terms of the agenda, and then I'm going to um, end, I mentioned uh, this thought experiment at the beginning of North Korea uh, and Europe. My sense is that although IMI is doing a fantastic job, um, we need a lot more evidence out there. Uh, and we also need a lot more effective communication of the evidence to key audiences. It, it is strange to me that I think everyone in the room is likely to be in broad agreement on many areas, but when you walk out the room and go to the pub, uh, certainly not a pub here, but in other parts of Oxford, you'll find uh, that most people do. Very sensible people have very strong views which are not very evidence-backed uh, on my migration, and how one manages that, how one communicates that, uh, I think is critically important. So research is key. Um, I think there needs to be a massive push on the global governance section of this uh, agenda as well. Uh, in my book, Divided Nations, I, I look at five areas of failure in global governance. Of course, there are many more. These are just indicative areas uh, of which migration uh, is, is one. The, the International Migration Organization um, is a good body. It has some data, it, has some, uh, it performs some good functions, but it's a very far away from being a legitimate, effective global organization with any ability to make rules uh, or to affect policy through uh, jurisdictions, through national treaties and organization. And that is urgently required. There's some areas which I think would be very small wins quick wins, like pension portability, for example, uh, like the data on migration, which is just a massive problem. Common terms for what we mean by migrants would be a massive step forward. Uh, some basic things like that that I think could be affected through um, that sort of organization. And then moving towards a progressive realization of migrants' rights over time. Uh, legal rights, human rights, but also uh, areas like temporary work visas, other sorts of areas could be incrementally adopted. They go through other organizations like the World Trade Organization now. They should go through a migration organization. And over time, I believe the agenda should be that all countries commit themselves to the same thing they've committed themselves to in the World Trade Organization, which is a progressive realization of the free movement of people in the world. Now, how quickly one gets there, how one gets there, whether one gets there first through bilateral and regional deals as is happening in trade, or whether one goes uh, into global deals is all part of what needs to be thought through uh, and negotiated globally. But without even the platform for that, that cannot begin, begin to be discussed. There are various organizations, and I was uh, involved in the, uh, the UN Commission on Migration and what's come out of it, which is the forum. Uh, and I used to go to the forum meetings uh, in my previous life as Vice President of the World Bank. I represented the World Bank on this whole migration thing, in fact, on, in all the UN forum. And all I'd say about that is that's just uh, not going to serve its purpose. Um, you know, this is basically uh, a group of heads of agencies territorially trying to keep and protect their turfs. Um, it's certainly, if, if, if what the object is, is to defend and advance the rights of migrants on a migration agenda, that's not what that is. 
Um, and uh, so I, I, I know it's been put up by some people as a sort of step towards. I don't see it as that. I think it's, it, I think it's basically a, something else. It's, it's a, a confirmation of the existing status quo. Um, with very, very little to show for it, I think, in terms of real effective changes. Um, so there's a big agenda out there. Uh, it's difficult to advance this agenda in the middle of a, the worst economic crisis for uh, at least 70 years. Um, so this is perhaps not the time to advance this agenda. But it's certainly the time to prepare for it. Thanks very much. Thank you.